as thousands of people thronged the streets around Croke Park on the afternoon of Bloody Sunday. 11-year-old William Robinson dodged through the crowd and climbed a tree alongside the bridge over the canal on Jones's Road. Looking into the ground, from the corner of the modern-day Hogan stand and Davin End. William had walked up from Little Britain Street in the centre of the city, a few minutes from Sackville Street. Home was the Ormond slum, considered in 1920 among the poorest areas of Europe. His family was a cross-section of everything normal and notable about Irish life at that time. His father, Patrick, worked around the Ormond fruit and vegetable markets and was a champion handball player. His cousin, Sam, was 16 years old and sometimes kept watch for Michael Collins's IRA squad when they were at their hideout near Jervis Street Hospital in the centre of the city. Another cousin, William, had served in the British Army and played soccer for Jacobs FC. On October 16th, barely a month before Bloody Sunday, William had gotten involved in a dispute with a couple of Republican police members the Sinn Féin police force, and was shot and killed. Now, young William, sitting in a tree, watching a football game, was about to become part of another terrible piece of history. The crowd was so big, the game had been delayed for a half hour and began at 3.15pm with Tipperary playing towards the railway end, away from where William Robinson was sitting. A short distance up Jones's Road, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Bray had arrived from Collinstown Aerodrome and was organising his troops to cover the exits and waited for the police to arrive. The plan was simple. The police would enter the ground and perform searches on the crowd. The army outside would oversee a calm and ordered exit. Ten minutes into the game, an airplane passed overhead, releasing a flare. At 3.25pm, the first convoys of RIC, Black and Tan and Auxiliaries crested the canal bridge behind William Robinson, the other trucks snaking all the way back up Russell Street. Major Edward Lawrence Mills, the officer in charge of the Auxiliaries, was sitting in the 13th truck of the convoy. Major George Dudley, in charge of the RIC and Black and Tan Force, jumped down from the lead truck and directed six more trucks further up Jones's Road. As Dudley jumped down and waved the trucks on, chaos suddenly started unfolding behind him. At the sight of the trucks, the people milling around outside Croke Park immediately ran. Instead of falling into lines having alighted from the trucks, police in the first two vehicles immediately took up positions on the bridge. Others ran down to the turnstiles at the corner of the ground. Up in the tree, William Robinson turned away from the game just for a moment to see the source of the noise behind him. In that instant, a single gunshot rang out. The bullet cut through Robinson's chest and exited through his right shoulder knocking him from the tree. Ten-year-old Jerome O'Leary had been lifted onto the wall behind the goal at the canal end just before the game had started. A second bullet struck O'Leary in the head 
killing him instantly. Suddenly, the air was thick with bullets and gunfire and the chaotic white noise of 15,000 people running for their lives. After 90 seconds of firing, 14 people would lie dead or fatally wounded. So much about the War of Independence and British rule in Ireland would be transformed in those moments. But for all its historical importance, the greatest impact would be felt by the people in Croke Park and the families left shattered and bereft by their losses. Everything that had turned the country upside down over the previous four years since the 1916 Easter Rising had led to this moment. The British insistence on treating a guerrilla war of independence as a series of criminal escapades best left to a mix of police and militia to quell. The GAA's struggle to play games in the worst circumstances, drawing a huge crowd to the one game of significance that winter. The IRA's need to strike back at the British forces closing in around them by hitting the British intelligence services across the city as they slept that Sunday morning. And the rank in discipline and wildness of the blackened hands and auxiliaries over the previous year that ruined any hope of them being accepted by the people as any kind of legitimate police force. The police were sent to Croke Park that day to perform a search operation, but some of the men in those trucks brought their own ideas about what amounted to justice. Once they jumped out of those trucks, they were free to dictate the terms of engagement, whatever the orders they received. If they wanted retribution for the killing of their comrades that morning, if this was a police force taking out two years of fear, resentment and plain hatred on an innocent group of victims, this was their moment. The result was slaughter in a place where no one really believed, even at the height of a savage war, that such a thing would ever happen. So join us as we return to Croke Park and witness its transformation from playing field to the stage for a massacre in the sixth episode of The Bloodied Field. Once the firing began, people ran. Some were trampled. Others were hit by ricocheting bullets and concrete. The field was ripped up by bullets. The scene at the exits quickly turned into chaos. The ticket sellers outside were pushed aside as black and tans and auxiliaries climbed the walls and pushed through the turnstiles. Once inside, they aimed at random groups of people running away from them. Some carefully picked their targets, others shot from the hip. A row of black and tans were now lined along the bridge, firing volleys into Croke Park. In the middle of the firing, Thomas Doyle, a ticket seller, went to William Robinson, lying on the ground by the tree, and picked him up. Take me to mother, Robinson whispered. Doyle handed Robinson to JJ Byrne, a friend of his. My name is John Byrne, he told William. What's yours? William Robinson, he replied. 
Will you tell Madame I'm hurt? Byrne hailed a cab and ordered the driver to take Robinson to Drumcondra Hospital. Byrne headed for Little Britain Street looking for William Robinson's dad. Strains of the same tragedy were now being played out all over Croke Park. Joseph Trainer was a 20-year-old labourer, footballer and IRA volunteer from Ballymount on the outskirts of Dublin City, who had cycled to the game with his friend PJ Ryan. He was among a group climbing the wall behind the canal goal where Jerome O'Leary had fallen. As police fired into a knot of people, he slumped over the side of the wall, shot twice in the back. On the eastern side of the ground, hundreds attempted to climb the seven-foot-high wall separating Croke Park from the Belvedere College sports grounds, braving the 20-foot drop to safety on the other side. Patrick O'Dowd was a labourer living in the inner city. When he reached the top of the wall, he stopped as dozens poured over the other side and began helping people up. One man he helped was a soldier in the British Army. O'Dowd yanked him up like a cement bag and dropped him over the other side. As the soldier landed, O'Dowd fell directly onto him, shot in the head. He was 57 years old. Down in front of O'Dowd, 29-year-old Jane Boyle had been standing with her fiancé, Daniel Byron, near the halfway line. They had gone to Mass together that morning in St Kevin's Church on Harrington Street, near Boyle's home on Lennox Street in Portobello, the same church they would return to at the end of the week to be married. Jane worked in a butcher shop on Talbot Street. IRA men and shootings were nothing new to her. The day Sean Tracy, the famous Tipperary IRA man, was shot and killed on Talbot Street a month previously, she had seen some other IRA men she knew coming up the street and offered to hide their guns in the shop if they wished. Harry Kells, a plainclothes Dublin Metropolitan Police officer, had been killed by the IRA close to where Jane lived. And in March 1920, a group of people started throwing stones at soldiers as they strolled along nearby Camden Street, singing Rule Britannia. The soldiers ran up Jane Street. One was shot in the chest. Two civilians were killed, a 19-year-old domestic servant and a van driver who lived a few streets away from Jane. And now, on this Sunday, as the firing engulfed Croke Park, Daniel held Jane's arm as they moved towards the northeast exit alongside Hill 60. Another volley of fire rang out, and Daniel felt Jane's grip loosen. She was hit in the back. The crowd surged again, and Daniel was swept away from his fiancée. Outside that exit, onto St James's Avenue, an armoured car had rolled into view. Inside the vehicle, the machine gun operator heard the order to fire and unleashed 15 rounds into the air, forcing the crowd back inside the ground and causing a fatal crush. 
James Tehan, a bar owner in Dublin, originally from Tipperary, and James Burke, a van driver from Windy Arbor near Dundrum, both died. James Matthews had left home on North Cumberland Street that afternoon for a stroll with a friend and called into his mother to say hello before deciding to head for Croke Park. James and his friend both attempted to climb a wall near the same exit when James was hit by a bullet in the leg. His friend got away, but James died at the foot of the wall. Even those who escaped the ground weren't safe. Michael Feary was slumped on the canal bridge outside the ground, blood streaming from a wound in his thigh. He was eventually carried across the bridge to a house on Russell Street. Daniel Carroll was leaving the ground when a shot from a police truck hit him in the leg. 19-year-old Tom Hogan from Tankardstown near Kilmallock in County Limerick was badly wounded in the shoulder. 14-year-old John William Scott had walked across the road to Croke Park from his home on Fitzroy Avenue with his friend. Now he lay on the table of a house on St. James's Avenue, gasping for water, his chest shattered by a ricocheting bullet. With the firing started, most of the players instinctively sprinted towards Hill 60 and tried to escape into the crowd. Many of those with volunteer experience, including Mick Hogan, hit the dirt. He had been running towards the ball with Frank Burke when the firing had begun. They stayed low and started crawling on their bellies towards the sideline in front of Hill 60. Stephen Sinnott, another Dublin player, was on the ground nearby. Burke could see bullets sparking and chipping pieces off the railway wall on their left. They're shooting at someone in the crowd, he shouted. Burke whispered a prayer and kept moving towards the sideline. In front of them lay the cinder track that encircled the pitch, then a white picket fence. Beyond that, the crowd. If they made it to the fence, they might clamber over and mingle in with everybody. Mick Hogan stayed close to Burke and Sinnott. We lie in here close, Hogan said. We might get some protection. They made the edge of the field, then the track. The fence was close. The crowd was rushing to the exits in waves, offering plenty of cover if the players could reach them. Then another volley of fire rang out. Burke heard a voice. I'm shot. It was Hogan. Blood poured from a wound in his back. Tom Ryan, the IRA volunteer, originally from Wexford, who had been among the party that morning, sent to kill a target at a house on Marlborough Road, instinctively ran to Hogan and knelt with him. He whispered an act of contrition in his ear. Another blast of fire and Ryan fell beside Hogan. Shot in the back, he crawled towards the crowd on Hill 60. By then, panic and terror had gripped the entire ground. Waves of people flattened the flimsy, corrugated fencing behind Hill 60 and ran to jump aboard the passing trams. Others packed into the houses on the small streets surrounding Crow Park, seeking refuge. 
One person had their heel shot off. Another person's hat was shot clean off their head. A ricocheting bullet hit a police constable in the chest, passing through his cigarette case and notebook, denting his whistle. People jammed into the changing rooms of Croke Park, listening to the bullets rattling against the galvanised roof. Monsignor Morris Brown, Mick Hogan's old friend from Grange Mokler, tried to calm the crowd in the changing room and stood at the door watching the chaos outside. People trampled over others as they tried to escape. Some got caught on the barbed wire and spikes at the top of the walls. Fruit sellers dropped their baskets. Musical instruments abandoned by the band that played before the game were scattered around among umbrellas, hats and walking sticks. A black and tan came to the changing room door, smoke wafting from his gun. He pointed it at Brown's head and cocked the trigger. Here we avenge our fallen comrades, he said. Then he fired a shot into the ceiling, ordering everyone outside. Out on Jones's road, Major Mills, the officer in charge of the auxiliaries, ran 200 yards up the street from his place in the convoy and shouted at the RIC men on the canal bridge. What's all this firing about, he said. Stop firing. Inside the ground, Major Dudley was shouting the same order at his black and tans. Finally, after 90 seconds, the shooting stopped. The remaining crowd were organised into lines, standing with their hands in the air. Machine guns from the armoured cars were trained on them. Come forward three paces, went the order. Now back three paces. Keep your hands higher. Oh, by God, I'll blow your bloody heads off. After McHogan had been shot, Frank Burke and Stephen Sinnott managed to get lost in the crowd. Burke pleaded with people for an overcoat. No one stopped to help, and eventually a black and tan caught him. Who are you playing for? he asked. Another struck Burke on the back of the head with his gun. Where's your dressing room? Burke looked towards the long stand and pavilion on the Jones's Road side of the ground. Well, double up! shouted the tan. Inside the changing rooms, all the Dublin players were searched, their watches, cigarettes and money taken. You can thank your Tipperary friends for this, said one policeman. Outside the ground, people left their houses and cautiously made their way up the canal to help the wounded. The Ring family lived at the end of Sackville Gardens, a row of houses beside the Belvedere sports grounds. The Ring brothers saw Joseph Trainer on the ground by the canal, bleeding badly. They picked him up and brought him to their house, accompanied by Trainer's friend, PJ Ryan. On St. James's Avenue, John William Scott clung to life on the table in Coleman's house. Mrs. Coleman and her daughter knelt around the table and said prayers. John William's lips moved in response. 
he asked for his mother. Pray for me, he said. He needed water, but it was too dangerous for anyone to go outside to the tap and get some. After 45 minutes, John Williams got died, the second child killed at Croke Park that day. A little later that evening, John Scott, John Williams' father, arrived at Mrs. Coleman's door. He had been looking for his son everywhere and had been directed here. Mrs. Coleman told him the story and how the military had taken the body but left him on the curb outside. She had covered his body with a blanket before the ambulance arrived. But how did she know it was him? Scott asked. How did she know it was John William? Maybe he was someone else's son. Mrs. Coleman reached into her pocket. Here was his tie pin. These were his glasses. John Scott took them. This unthinkable grief was now his to bear. Back inside Croke Park, a dozen Tipperary players stood by the railway wall, some of them expecting to be executed. Tommy Ryan, the Tipperary player Dan Breen had asked to accompany him home to Tipperary that morning, had slipped into a house full of people. But after a few minutes, a group of policemen entered the house and spotted Ryan. They drew bayonets and started picking at his Tipperary kit. Bring him back to Croke Park. We'll shoot him with the rest of them. He was marched back to Croke Park, almost naked. A man threw his coat on Ryan and took a hit from a rifle butt. Ned O'Shea was picked from the Tipperary players to identify Mick Hogan, who lay on the field away to their left in a pool of his own blood. Father Crotty, a priest from Mullinahone in South Tipperary, was pulled from the crowds being searched. Hogan was turned over. O'Shea confirmed it was him. Crotty then knelt by Hogan and said an act of contrition. Annie Burke, the girl from Sligo we met in episode one, threw her coat on his body. Crotty then departed for holy oils to anoint him. O'Shea was then brought to other bodies nearby. Jane Boyle lying on the bank. James Matthews shot dead at the foot of the wall. Another man crushed in the stampede. Probably James Tehan or James Burke. A policeman picked up a walking stick and handed it to O'Shea. He didn't want it. Keep it, the policeman replied, as a memento. At the same time, Monsignor Morris Brown had returned to Croke Park, looking for Mick Hogan. As he left earlier, having been searched, Brown had looked back at Croke Park. He saw the long queues of people 
waiting to be searched. He saw men being beaten with rifle butts. One man was on his knees in a corner of the field, a black and tan waving a gun over him until the man's nose touched the ground. There were bodies lying motionless, scattered everywhere. Years later, Brown reached back to his Greek classics when describing the scene, and Virgil remembering the sacking of Troy. Everywhere is relentless grief, everywhere panic, and countless shapes of death. Now he returned, seeking his friend. A Dublin Metropolitan Police officer rushed over. You're mad to walk down that street. You'll be shot. When Brown insisted on continuing, the policeman accompanied him into the ground. The tans and auxiliaries outside were singing songs and attaching the tricolour flag that flew over Croke Park to the back of a truck. Brown went to Mick Hogan and stayed with his body as the ambulances came and went. When it was time to head for Jervis Street Hospital, Brown got into the back of the ambulance with him. The same sad journey was being made to different hospitals. The rings carried Joseph Trainer out to the laneway behind their house for an ambulance to take him away. Trainer died shortly after arriving at Jervis Street. When the firing had been at its peak, Jerome O'Leary's body had been handed to James Evans, who took him back to his house. Jerome lay in the Matter Hospital that evening, as yet unknown and unclaimed. Michael Feary was taken from the house on Russell Street at 6.30pm and moved to Jervis Street Hospital. No one knew who he was either, this small, thin man with a sandy-coloured moustache, dressed in his faded British Army fatigues, the initials MF, sewn in red thread onto his shirt and his undershirt. William Robinson, the boy in the tree, was in Drumcondra Hospital. His father was in the corridor with John Byrne, the man who was sent to find him. When the surgeon arrived, Byrne was sent to find a priest. The surgeon explained to Patrick Robinson how the bullet that spliced through William's shoulder and chest could have killed him instantly. But it hadn't. His son was still alive, still fighting. Inside Croke Park, the Dublin team had already gone. As we heard in episode two, Major Mills was moving between the line of Tipperary players at the railway wall and the policemen ready to shoot them. As an officer that served in wartime, he had already seen too much death in life. The catastrophic collapse in discipline that day 
also incensed him. His men had no claim on revenge, no claim on the lives of these men. He let the Tipperary players go and they scattered that night throughout the city. Some went back to Barry's hotel where their day had started out. Many of them went to the headquarters of O'Toole's GA club at Seville Place where some Dublin players had also gathered. Jack Kavanagh of O'Toole's gave them £50 to divide among themselves to help get home to Tipperary. Tommy Ryan and another Tipperary player, Tommy O'Connor, stayed at Stephen Sinnott's house. Sinnott's wife, Molly, had been walking along the canal heading towards Croke Park with her baby son, Sean, around the time the game had begun, but got turned back by a man who told her about the shots being fired. That night, they heard a bell ringing outside and a truck stopping. Crossley tenders carried a bell in the front cab. All three players ran into a field behind the house and hid behind a manure pile as a house three doors up was raided. Johnny MacDonald got home that night to find his mother in tears, thinking her son had been killed. The Tipperary player Bill Ryan crossed the city to his brother's house on Weckford Street, where he drank his first three bottles of stout. News of their son's death reached the trainers in Ballymount on the outskirts of Dublin at nine o'clock that night. In Jervis Street Hospital, Tom Ryan, the man shot trying to help Mick Hogan, lay in bed, drifting in and out of consciousness. His wife sat close to him, listening as he whispered his story to her about praying for Mick Hogan and getting shot. His wounds were too severe to remove his clothes. His brothers also sat with him. Brothers who had played hurling for Wexford in their time. Tom's own time with the IRA had been short and eventful. In late 1919, when the IRA raided Collinstown Aerodrome looking for arms, Tom was among them, gaining the nickname More Rope for his constant request for extra rope while tying up soldiers and guards during the operation. As he lay in bed that Sunday night, a volunteer in uniform appeared in the room and offered a salute. There's one man lying here, he said, but there's hundreds would fall for him tonight. Tom Ryan died two hours later. He was 27. Back at Beggar's Bush, Major Mills was typing out a damning report for F.P. Crozier, head of the auxiliaries, blaming the police for firing first on the crowd without provocation. It was a report that would never be seen again. Across the city in Dublin Castle, officials were finalising the first draft of the day's events for politicians back in London and newspapers across the world. The story of Bloody Sunday in Croke Park already getting bent and distorted as they wished. 
Elsewhere in the castle, Dick McKee, head of the IRA's Dublin Brigade, his deputy, Pat Clancy, and Conor Clune, an Irish-language activist, arrested the previous night at Vaughan's Hotel, where Michael Collins and others had retired for a drink, having finalised the planned IRA attacks the following morning, were being tortured and executed. The authorities would later claim all three had been killed while attempting to escape. The condition of their bodies insisted otherwise. Outside in the city, the streets and theatres and picture houses of Dublin were empty. Searchlights strafed the streets and the sky. Families were gathered outside the hospitals in mourning and in prayer, some of them hoping for a miracle. As a crowd gathered near Capel Street, watching auxiliaries drag suspects into trucks from nearby houses, a group of soldiers and auxiliaries opened fire to push the crowd back. A 71-year-old man and a 14-year-old boy were killed. More panic, more countless shapes of death, more relentless grief. It felt like this terrible day would never end. Join us next time on The Bloodied Field when we chart the last dying hours of the remaining victims. We'll recall the battle waged to find the truth of Bloody Sunday in Croke Park, the fistfights in Westminster on the subject, the inquiries, the reports buried, and how the victims' stories gradually got lost through the cracks of history. Thanks for listening. The Bloodied Field podcast is written and produced by me, Michael Foley, and edited by Andrew Foley. We had two special guests on the show today. Terry Noonan voiced both the police officer threatening the crowd at Croke Park and the officer bringing Tommy Ryan back to the ground. And Dermot Keyes played the Dublin Metropolitan Policeman on Jones's Road in the aftermath of the killing. You can find us and follow this full series of podcasts at gaa.ie forward slash Bloody Sunday or on Spotify. You can also contact us on Twitter at bloodiedfieldp1 or email us at bloodiedfieldpodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do spread the word. This is a story we feel everyone needs to hear.